Uh, God is good. All the time. And all the time. God is good with this cooler weather, I'm telling you. I'm liking that. Uh, I was actually out, outside the other night in my backyard doing a little studying, and uh, it got so cold I had to go inside. Now, what is wrong with this picture? I was getting cold, and I had long pants and long shirt, sleeve shirt on, and I'm like, well, that's nice. I like that. Well, today, um, today I want to talk about living in the divine purpose. And uh, purpose is something that we all wrestle with, process, maybe struggle with um, at different stages of life. I think about uh, when someone's little, you know, oftentimes we ask them this certain question, right? You know what it is? What are you going to be when you grow up, right? So what are you going to be when you grow up? And I remember when I was uh, six years old, I was in first grade, I knew exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up. I wanted to play football for the USC Trojans. That was going to be my purpose in life. And um, the girl who sat across from me in first grade uh, believed her purpose was to marry me. <laughs> and uh, I, um, I told her that she wasn't going to achieve her purpose in life um, because I wasn't going to marry her. And uh, she didn't understand why. And I said, well, I'll tell you exactly why I'm not going to be able to marry you, because I'm going to play football for the USC Trojans. Now, I don't know why, but in my six-year-old mind, that made total sense that I couldn't be married and play football for USC at the same time, you know? Single purpose, right? Single focus. And I remember as I got older, um, I, I watched this TV show, some of you may remember, on Saturday night called Emergency. Do you remember that show? The two paramedics. And uh, of course, that was, I think, after Lawrence Welk. You know, that was kind of like the Saturday night Adventist activity. You know, sun goes down, turn on Lawrence Welk, emergency, what, love boat, Fantasy Island, you know, you had the whole triple header, right? There you are. And I remember watching Emergency going, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. I want to be a paramedic. I, wanna, I want that active life, you know, where I'm in the red vehicle and we're going and we're saving lives. And there was only one problem, though. From a very young age, when I would watch people take blood from me, guess what would happen? I'm down. I would pass out every single time. And, you know, my dad worked at the hospital, so, oh, you're, you're Vince's son. So they wouldn't give me one sucker. They'd give me like a handful of suckers, you know, after they took my blood. But every time they were all over the floor when I would pass out. So I realized I probably wasn't going to be working with something with blood. Um, to this day, just so you know, like when, when blood is taken, I, don't, I can't watch. I don't watch because I don't want, you know, 200 pounds going down on the ground. Um, that could not be good for me. But purpose, living with that purpose, as we get into high school, we start you know, taking all the tests we've got to take because we're thinking of college and, and purpose. And we get to college, and what's our, what's our major going to be? You know, and if you don't know what your major is when you start, you better hurry up because four years goes by quick. If you go into other fields, you've got to figure out what your specialty is going to be, and then someday you get married, and then you're like, am I, am I achieving, helping my spouse achieve their purpose? And then you have kids, and am I teaching my kids that they live with purpose? And... We go on and on. The cycle goes on. We go into our years and have a career. Maybe after 40-plus years, we're wondering, so did I achieve my purpose? And what's my purpose now if I'm not working? And what's my purpose now if, if my kids have left the nest and my whole life revolved around that crazy schedule? And so what do I do now? And as life goes on, what else, what else is, have I achieved my purpose? 
Have I done what God wants me to do? Purpose. Dictionary says, the reason for which something exists or is done, made or used, an intended or desired result, an end, an aim, and a goal. I remember watching years ago on ABC News. It was one of their documentaries called The Search for Jesus. I can still remember seeing Peter Jennings as he was talking and he said, hello, I'm Peter Jennings. And we've been searching for Jesus, as reporters that is, because it's an irresistible story. And whatever your faith or religion, there's simply no denying the extraordinary influence that Jesus has had, that he does have, in people's lives. And I want to suggest to us this morning that that's because Jesus, being the Son of God, lived in the divine purpose. He lived in and accomplished the divine purpose for his life that impacted this earth like it's never been impacted and ever will be impacted. Today I want us to spend some time with Jesus during a, um, a moment in his life and his disciples' lives when his purpose, his divine purpose, becomes very, very clear to us. A moment also when he invites his followers to join him in living with him in the divine purpose for all of humanity. So we're going to look today at John chapter 12 in verse 20. But before we get there, I want to just kind of set up the scene. It's the time of the Passover. Jesus and his followers are there. And there are literally hundreds of thousands of people that have come to Jerusalem for this Passover event. And they're there to, to celebrate the feast. And if you'll remember in John chapter 11, Jesus has done one of what John calls his signs, one of his miracles, these signposts pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. And he has raised Lazarus from the dead. And now he's there. He's had his triumphal entry. They proclaim the Hosannas. He's coming on the donkey. And just before these verses in verse 17, it says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. And many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And now we get to verse 20 where John shows how the whole world is coming after him. He says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Gal Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. And Philip went to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Now these Greeks weren't really from Greece, per se, but they were Gentiles. They were what they call God-fearers. Gentiles who were taking on the Jewish faith and believing about Jesus, and not about Jesus, but about what God was up to. And they were coming and they were looking, was this the Messiah? And so they were participating in the feast of Passover and so forth. And they'd heard about this Jesus. And so John now shows how, yes, in fact, those who weren't even Jews were now starting to come to this message of Jesus and wondering what he was about. And there they were. Sir, we would, we would like to see Jesus. Well, for as long as I've known about this passage, I've always found it quite interesting, Jesus' response to these Greeks. Sir, we want to see Jesus. They come up to Jesus, and, and you would think maybe Jesus would say hi. 
my name's Jesus. Introduce himself, maybe have a conversation, throw out a parable here or there. But Jesus says, the first words out of his mouth, Jesus replies and he says this, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel remains only a single seed, I'm sorry, let me go back here. Tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now, can you just imagine, if you will, the two disciples there, Philip and Andrew, Jesus, they want to see you. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he goes into this talk about a seed dying. Wouldn't you be kind of looking at Andrew going, here he goes again. <laughs> what is he up to? What is he saying? What, how, why does he just launch into this stuff? But that's what Jesus does. He says the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when I think about the miracles, or as John calls them, signs that Jesus had, in John's gospel, in my human understanding, I would think those would be some good hours. You think back on his miracles, when Jesus turns the water into wine, that would be a, a good hour to maybe say, my hour has come. Or maybe when he healed the official son without even being there. That's pretty impressive. That would be a good hour. Or he heals the crippled man on the Sabbath by the pool. That, that would be a good, a good sign. A good, yes, my hour has come. Or maybe, maybe, maybe the feeding of the 5,000. Now, if somebody fed over 5,000 people with, with a few loaves and fish, wouldn't you say, this, I think my time has arrived. Maybe not. I would say probably walking on water would be a good candidate for that. My hour has come. Or maybe healing a man born blind. Or maybe to top it all off, actually raising somebody from the dead. It seems that maybe at one of those things you could say, my hour has come. But that was never his hour. In fact, often he said when those things happen, my hour has not yet come. It's not the hour. But here, Jesus, his whole gospel has been leading up to this place where he says, it is now the hour has come for the Son of Man. My time has come. My hour has come. The time has come. And yet there, in that moment, no miracle occurs. No wow. No wonder. But his hour has come. Because now, in his road to the cross, in this week of passion, his passion for the world and for you and I is going to be fully revealed by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. That is the passion of God, of you and I, of dying for our sins of giving us the opportunity to be set free from the power and the domain of darkness 
and of evil. But in this passage, Jesus not only talks about his hour coming, but he talks about you and I as well. And talking about his own life, when he says in verse um, 24, when he says, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Yes, he's talking about his life dying for the, for the world. But as he goes on, we also understand he's talking about you and I. The man who loves his life, he says in verse 25, will lose it. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. So Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life away. I'm living in the divine purpose for my life. And if you want to follow me, you too will live in the divine purpose for your life. And that's going to be a life of dying to self and living to God. That's going to be a, a life of surrender to the reign of God. And when you do that, your life is going to be life-giving, not life-sucking. Because when we die to self, we surrender to the reign of Jesus Christ, it brings life, freedom, transformation. We uh, moved into our house five years ago. And when we moved in, there was some landscaping in the front and absolutely no landscaping in the back. Just dirt. And so we said, well, we need to do something. And, and so we planted some grass and we planted, we didn't plant, we put in hardscape. So we had some cement and we had some grass. And then, as you know, time kind of goes on. And you go, man, we really need to plant something back here. We need some bushes. We need some plants. We need some flowers. We need some trees. And... Uh, and then before you know it, another year goes by. And you go, we really need to do something back here. And then another year goes by, and another year goes by, and pretty soon we're like, man, we need, we need to do something. Well, if you have kids, you know, usually they kind of inspire you and move you along. And so uh, my, my daughter, who's now 14, she says, Dad, can I have a tree? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, what kind of dad have I been? I haven't given a tree to my daughter. And so I said, yes, we're going to get a tree. Now, the problem is, here's, here's, my, here's my problem. My daughter is a freshman in high school. I have her four more years in the house. So if I'm going to plant a tree, it can't be like this, right? Because she says, she didn't just say she wanted a tree. She says, Dad, I want a tree I can sit under and read. <laughs> well, you know, technically, you could put one out there, and she could sit under it and, and read. But that wasn't going to be the case. So, um, so we said, all right, we're going to bite the bullet. You know, we're going to get this done. And so we bought some trees. And so as of a few weeks ago, we have 11 new trees in our yard. And uh, now they're not all like the olive trees out front here. <laughs> in fact, none of them are like that. Uh, because we didn't bring any cranes in. You know, we just we brought some boxes in and, and uh, we did that. But uh, technically, they're tall enough for her to read under. Um, they're just not bushy enough yet, you know. So uh, I'm told in about six months, you know, it'll be quite a, quite a difference. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, and when I told her the type of trees we were getting, 
Um, she was excited, but kind of not so much. And I said, these are, these are carrot wood trees. They're green year round, you know? And they don't have evasive roots. And, and, and they're really great. They don't drop a bunch of stuff. And then she said, you mean they're not going to change color and drop leaves? And I said, oh, man. So, so two of the trees we got are going to change color and they're going to drop leaves, you know, some of the bigger ones. But, but it's quite one thing to look at your backyard one day and there's nothing. And then you come home that day and boom, you got trees. And it's a wonderful thing. But the Christian life is not like that, is it, according to Jesus? It's not like, accept me, and then boom. He calls us to be like a seed that we plant. And when you plant a seed, it takes a while for that. It, it takes some dark nights to germinate that seed as well as the sunshine. It takes, it takes some, some hot summers, and yet it takes some nice springs, and it takes some falls, and it takes some winters. It takes some what they might call dark nights of the soul. It takes some waiting. It takes some, it doesn't just happen. It's got to die. And then it's got to start birthing. And then it gives life to many seeds. And so Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, your life isn't going to be like this instant bang. You're going to have to die to yourself. And it's not just one yes, Jesus. I found in my life, it is day by day surrender. It's day by day, sometimes moment by moment, surrender to Jesus and saying yes. It's those times, it's, in fact, it's the little yeses. You know, when I was in a building program years ago, we always said the devil's in the details. And that's the way it is because I can say yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior, but let me tell you, when I'm in a relationship, when I'm at work, when I'm at home, when I'm wherever it is, and there's that situation that comes up, what am I going to do in this situation right now? Am I going to die to self and live to God right in this moment? Or am I going to protect my way? The seed's going to die or it's going to try to spare its life. I'm either going to love my life and end up losing it, or I'm going to say I value my life in this world more than eternity. It's the little yeses. Jesus says, you've got to follow me. But you see, the temptation we fall into, I believe, is, is this our thing. The reason I brought out the miracles is that in our human, human mind and understanding, and you see it in Scripture with those who were around Jesus at the time and wanted to make him king as soon as he did a great miracle, let's make this guy our king. But he said, my hour's not here. Too often in this life, we want to force our hour to come. And when we want to force our hour to come, we don't surrender too well. In fact, we can plot out all of our long-term goals. We can write them all out. And that's wonderful. I'm not saying not to do that. But then after a while, if I've worked hard on that, then it's my hour. And anybody who gets in my way has got you-know-what to pay. But Jesus didn't live that way. He lived in the divine purpose of God. And when his hour came, his hour came. And he never wanted to force his hour. Years ago when I was doing youth ministry, I remember there was an elder who didn't particularly like my methods of youth ministry. And so uh, he rounded up a few other elders and he got the senior pastor and wanted to meet with me. And, and uh, so we're, we're sitting there and, and he said, John, 
I want to know what your five-year plan is for our youth ministry. Now, every once in a while, the Holy Spirit falls upon me, and I have this enlightenment, this clarity of thought. It doesn't happen often, but every once in a while. And I'm sitting there, and I said, well, elder such and such, I believe in progressive revelation. He didn't know what to say to that. <laughs> and I sent up a thank you to Jesus in that moment. And I said, you know, I don't know what God has in plan for me or this youth group five years from now. But I will tell you what he has in store today and tomorrow. And that's that I have given my life to make a disciple out of your son for Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do that today, and I'm going to do it tomorrow, and I'm going to do it the next day. And my prayer is that your son will be a follower of Jesus Christ. But I can't tell you where your son's going to be in five years. I don't even know where I'm going to be in five years because I have no idea where Jesus is going to take me in five years. But my goal is to live at the feet of Jesus. And when I live at the feet of Jesus, those feet go a-walking. <laughs> those feet don't just stay in place. Those feet say sometimes stay those feet sometimes say, just be still and know that I'm God. And sometimes those feet say, we got something to do, let's go. And that's where my vision is, is to sit at the feet of Jesus. And then by the grace of God, follow those feet wherever they go. I read a book several years ago, and I was in my late 20s. It was called The Making of a Leader. And the author, Robert Clinton, talked about how he'd studied Christian leaders for years and years and years and years. And he said that there's a period, there's a point in a Christian leader's life where they might hit convergence. In other words, where everything comes together, where who God created them to be, um, what they, their life experience, their spiritual gifts, everything comes together and finally it just, they hit convergence where just who they are is their life and ministry for the next several years. And he said, but the sad part is, is that the majority of pastors and the majority of Christian leaders never hit convergence. And he said, this is the reason why. Because all along that leader's life, God sends them things, such as, he says, obedience checks, integrity checks, in the word, God gives them something to be obedient towards, and that person keeps resisting and keeps resisting and keeps resisting. Or there's an opportunity to have integrity, but that person doesn't have integrity in the moment. He says, those are the things that keep that person from developing and hitting convergence. Because how, how can God put people in those positions if they're not going to have integrity and they're not going to be obedient to him? What he's saying is that, as I sum it up, that Christian leader has to surrender. Because when you are confident that you are in God's hand, you can take those risks. You can have integrity instead of trying to cover and protect yourself. You can trust that God's asking you, asking you to be obedient in this area when you're scared to death to be obedient. But when we surrender to the reigning king, Jesus, we can do those things. John's also known for the I am statements of, of Jesus. 
And I want to just put these on the screen, just one at a time, so hopefully you can just sit in them for a few seconds. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Isn't it great news that we can just totally put our life into the hands of God who himself is the bread of life? Providing all sustenance of life and meaning. I am the light of the world. You will never be without light in your life. No matter how dark it seems, your king, your Lord, your savior is the light of the world. He said, I am the gate. I'm the door of the sheep. Always enter in by me. Whatever you do, enter through me. Always know that I am. If you always live with me, you're where you're supposed to be. I am the good shepherd. You can trust me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're with me. He is the good shepherd. And no matter what I face in this life dealing with my own mortality, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Not even death can hold you down. In John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you're ever feeling lost and you're not sure what you're doing, the answer is always, follow and trust Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, in John 15, one of my personal favorites, I am the true vine. Don't try hooking yourself up to anything or anyone else but me because nothing and no one else will produce fruit in your life for eternity and glorify God. But we can surrender to the I am's of Jesus, of who he is. We can completely trust him with our lives. Jesus goes on with his words in John chapter 12. And I love this next verse because we see the heart of Jesus. Verse 27, he says, Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. I love this passage because we see that Jesus was not a machine. He wasn't a machine that was programmed to do the the mission of God without the possibility of failing. Jesus says, my heart is troubled. In that moment of surrender, church, in that moment of surrender, isn't your heart troubled? Mine often is. Because that's where the fight is fought. That's where the tension is in my heart. Am I going to trust Jesus in this? Am I going to let him rule in this situation? Am I going to let him reign over my life in this situation? Or am I going to protect myself? Because let me tell you, when you follow Jesus, you put yourself in a lot of positions to get hurt. When you love somebody you don't feel deserves to be loved, when we forgive someone we don't feel deserves forgiveness, when we try to speak hope into someone's life and they may not want it, it hurts. And Jesus, going to the cross, knew not everybody was going to accept his life, but he did it anyways. My heart is troubled. But what, what do I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. When he says, Father, glorify your name, he didn't say, hey, do something to get a lot of applause. 
He says, now do what will fully show your love and your amazing, wonderful compassion for sinners. And that's what we saw on the cross, isn't it? We saw the love of the Father for you and I and for the world. You see, as followers of Jesus, we need to understand Jesus was a wonderful teacher, but his message was not all the words he said. His message was his life. His message was his sacrificial life. And he says, if you want my message to be alive in you and you want your life to be my message to the world, then you need to die like I did. Die. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul said, I die daily that he may live. His life was his message. And church, we have a message to preach, but let me tell you, it doesn't even come close to the message we live. And when we live the message Jesus asked us to live of dying to self, living to God, of giving our lives away to others through love, that's a church I want to be a part of. Because the church can say all kinds of doctrines and the church can do all kinds of evangelistic crusades and they can preach things that seem right and that cognitively make sense. But if we're not giving our life away, it's just some teachings. Jesus said we have to die. As followers of his, we have to die. I witnessed something beautiful in the classroom a couple of weeks ago. In this class for first-year med students where it focuses on their Christian formation as physicians. There were 35 students, and um, it's a six-week class. In the first two weeks, they don't have any other studies besides this class. And then come their second, third week, now they're going to start hitting all the anatomy. They're going to start hitting all these things. And instantly you see when they come into class that week, their faces are just overwhelmed tired and we were talking in class that day and I forget what question I was asking some questions or something and but whatever it was this this one girl decided to speak up and I was so blessed by her authenticity and her transparency her vulnerability and willing to risk and she said you know the other morning and she's saying this in front of the whole class we're all sitting there in a big circle and she says you know the other morning I woke up and I was so depressed. She said, I woke up so depressed and I thought, what am I doing here in med school? I'm not smart enough. How did I even get in? I'm not smart enough and I don't belong here. And I just was, I was just in awe and I was just, it was one of the most beautiful things I'd seen. I, to me, you know, I love the beauty of the creation we see outside, but to me, one of the most beautiful things is when a human being risks like that and just shares their heart openly and, and that's where I like to say and I don't, I'm, not, I'm not the first one to say this I've heard it somewhere but they say that grace comes through the cracks of brokenness the easiest and here was I saw this broken vessel just oozing the grace of God to, this, to these students and, and as she was sharing this you could tell she was kind of uh, am I, like am I really saying this out loud you know and she was staring this. I go, wait, just stop, stop, stop. I go, is there anyone else in this classroom that feels this way? What do you think happened? All the hands went up. 
And I said to her, thank you so much for sharing that because now you know you're not alone. And now they all know they're not alone. But I told her on the last day of class, I said, I want you to know, I just told, talked to her privately, I said, I want you to know that was one of the highlights for me in the class this year. What you did was one of the most beautiful things. And I said, let me tell you, if you keep doing stuff like that, you're going to be a phenomenal doctor. You're going to bring a lot of healing into people's lives, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and all those different ways. You keep letting the grace come through the cracks in your life. But there she was. I know she wasn't thinking of it this way, but I was sitting there thinking, she is living in the divine purpose in this moment. She is giving her life away to her student, friends, colleagues. And look at the life she gave them. Because she was secure in who she was in Christ. And because she was secure in who she was in Christ, she could risk it all, just like Jesus did. He was secure in the love of the Father, and he risked it all. He gave it all away. And church, that's what Jesus is asking of every single one of us, to risk it all, because we're secure in him to live in the divine purpose. Let's pray. Jesus, there are not words to say often when talking with you because we're just in awe. In awe of how you risked it all for us to reveal the wonderful, marvelous love and compassion of the Father for us. And so, Jesus, we also are honored, maybe a little scared that you've invited us to live in the divine purpose with you, to risk it all for you, to bring life and healing into the lives of others. And so, Jesus, we just pray that by your grace, we would be that seed that dies so that others may live. Let's take a moment in silent prayer to talk to Jesus this morning about living in the divine purpose with him.